Welcome back to HTCML, How Technology Changed My Life podcast. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Sharon Thompson. At an early age, she started reading a book about how the body works that sparked her interest in becoming a doctor. It's a great conversation about her journey. Sit back and enjoy. So on today's How Technology Changed My Life podcast, we are welcome and blessed to have Dr. Sharon Thompson, who is just going to have a conversation with us about how technology has changed her life, impact her life, and what she's doing with it to change other people's lives. So Dr. Thompson, would you like to introduce yourself? Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am an OBGYN and I run my own private practice in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, before I went to med school, I actually got a degree in public health as well. So, and my degree was focused more on health systems and some of the uh, policies that influence maternal and child health because I work with women primarily. Cool. So the first question I love to ask is, what were some of your hobbies as a kid? Hobbies as a kid, I, I, aside from reading, I, I was a bookworm and I still am, actually. I read everything. In fact, funny story, how I became an OBGYN through reading. So I, I would read, every, when I tell you everything, I read, if, if it was the manual in the house and I ran <laughs> out of books, I would read it. And so I had run out of books this one particular day. Who knows? Maybe it was a Sunday. Sundays were so boring. And um, my mom had a home uh, first aid and nursing manual. And I picked it up and I started reading it. And I would just flip through different chapters. And then they had a a chapter on uh, emergency birth at home. Wow. (laughs) Oh, I still have this book to this day. Um, and I was about 11 or 12 at that time. And I was reading this book about what to do if someone goes into labor, what the equipment that you need, how to take care of the mom, how to take care of the baby. And I was like, this is crazy. Wow. It was like, it was so fascinating to me. And that fascination has lasted from that day to this. So basically picking up a random book at 11 or 12 years old about birth of all things. I, I would be interested in what the photo, were, were the photos graphic in there back then or were they? No, very, like, it, it, it was like line drawing. So it was, okay. you know, like sketches and it wasn't anything. Most of the photos were of the equipment that you would need, oh, right? Okay. What, what to get, you know, like, you know, you need a string to tie the umbilical cord and you want a scissors and things like that. Okay, because I when you said it, I was just like, I don't even know if I would have wanted to see or know what my body looked like at that age down there. <laughs> <laughs> I read so many things that I probably should not have read at that age. <laughs> oh, so yeah, so that's very interesting. So I I would venture to say that that was your first, well, not your first, but one of your imprints into the sciences and to the medical where you um, Mm -hmm. got started. And so that, as you said, you still have that book. So what kind of that triggered you, but what continued to lead you down that path of wanting to be in that, in the, be an OBGYN? I I think what it sparked for me was this just fascination with, with how bodies work right? With, with the inner workings of your body. And so, I mean, I took that all the way to, I was a bio major in college, right? So how we are put together and how did the various parts come together to give us these functions that we have was just 
so fascinating to me, and it still continues to be, to be honest. Just the things that our bodies can do are incredible. You know, like, one of the things that fascinated me as a kid was laughing. Like, what is that about? Why do we do that? What is that? How does that work? What are the nerves and, you know, muscles and all that that go into this sensation that you just want to laugh? Right? Or even tickling. These are the things I thought about as a child. You asked about what I thought about as a kid. Right. I would think about that. Like, what's a tickle? What is that? (laughs) Why is that part sensitive in the body? Right. And and why is that? And how does that work? And how come some touches are tickling, but other touches? And some people are ticklish and some people aren't. Like, these are the things I would think about as a kid. It's 10 and 11 and... Yeah, yeah, you uh, you were uh, a way ahead of your time as a kid, and the I was pretty nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's, oh, yeah. I think it's that's cool because it. what happens sometimes is when you have things or hobbies as a kid, it may not transfer over into your career, mm-hmm. and so I I think that's amazing and great that your love of books and you found a book that sparked an interest that Mm -hmm. you were able to carry that on through. And that's one of the things when I've talked with young people, I don't usually say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always say, Mm -hmm. what do you like to do? What are your hobbies? Because that to me is where you should lead down the path of your career. Because for me, I like taking photos with my aunt as a kid. And so I do that Mm -hmm. on the side. I love working with my cousins, working on cars, and I became working on computers. So it all leads to Mm -hmm. that path. And so Mm -hmm. what do you think we can do as a community to foster that and bring more into that, into the homes and into conversations about, because I think about when some of the parents I work with on when they'd be like, that little breaks all the stuff in the house. And I'd be like, well, that's a future engineer, you know, trying to get them to understand, like getting parents to see things differently from Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he's breaking stuff to no Mm -hmm. activity. You know, I think you're you're so onto something. And this is something that I too, you know, it's funny that um, I started off when you asked me about hobbies, talking about how I love books. And even though I'm a doctor now, I'm an OBGYN, but I deliver babies. And so right. people bring their kids. And so I get to introduce their kids to books, you know, oh, so that's it's cool. still related. He, just yesterday, I had a mom bring her seven-year-old in. And while she was doing something, I took him in my office and I got a book. I, I always have books in my office to give to kids. And we were reading the book together and then he got to take the book home. So that's still part of what I do. But I think that you're so onto something with helping parents reframe how they interpret their kids' behavior. Right. So when, when parents bring kids to the office, they're in everything. You know, they want to open every drawer and go over there. And the parents are like, no, no, stop. And I said, no, they're exploring. Our job is to keep them safe. Yeah. They're trying to figure out what's in the world and where the boundaries are. And we will tell them where the boundaries are. But let them explore. Let them figure it out. They're curious. And then, you know, I make a joke and I'm like, well, you know, if your kid were sitting in the corner quietly, not saying anything, then we wonder what was going on upstairs, right? So your exploring child is a curious, normally developing child. So that's such a big part of it is reframing children's behavior, not as so-and-so is bad, but so-and-so curious, you know? And then the other thing too, that I, I encourage parents to do is to see their kids. And what I mean by that is, you know, is your child very physical? Are they very, or are they very social? Do they love people? Do they love interacting? Is your kid musical? Are they always humming or tapping out a beat? And then when you see that, try to enhance it, yeah. right? 
Yeah. So see where that kid is at. And like, like me, I got to being a doctor through reading. Your child may become an engineer through music or a musician through play outside. You never yeah. know where that love is going to lead that kid, but just try to see what they love. And then the last thing I would say about that is the other thing I try to do with kids is instead of this school is work and play is fun to help kids to see that the stuff they're learning in school is everywhere. And that like your Lego blocks use engineering to cut right. those blocks so they fit together. And, you know, the, the bicycle you're riding is all about physics. And that's how you say, so help them to see school in everyday life, that there's not this dichotomy between not fun school and fun outside of school, that it's all a piece and it's all fun when you're a kid. Right. And you bring it the conversation around fun. And that's one of the things that I always try to do within my programming is make learning fun, because I think mm-hmm. such this is such this stigma on it that it's not mm-hmm. fun. And like school, as you said, is like a job for them, like a job mm-hmm. is for us. But it's like changing that conversation. And so, mm-hmm. you know what I do. And so you've seen some of the things I've done is oh, like yeah. I remove all the paperwork and like, okay, I'm going to just give it to you and let you play with it. And I think that's one of the things um, in having those conversations and, you know, even you as a doctor, what's one of the things that I, as this question is forming, I'm trying not to try to keep this PG (laughs) in my head is, but the conversations that I know that I do not have with no parent, but Uh how do you start those conversations about the body without it being inappropriate Mm -hmm. or, you know, getting your, your kids to be interested in it, not from just television, but like you're saying, cause you're, you were interested in why the tickle and why the smile and why Mm -hmm. muscles do this and all that. So how do we bring more of us into the medical fields and start that conversation from the, cause everything about our body is always the sexual side, but there's more to it. Right. And, and so I, those same questions I talk about with my young patients about how incredible our bodies are and the things that our body can do that are just amazing. One of the facts that I talk to them about that grosses them out, but is fascinating also is all the bacteria that live in our bodies, right? <laughs> if you take a cell for cell and break us down and stack up the bacterial cells and the human cells, we're actually 90% bacterial cells. Really? way more bacterial cells in our body than we have. Right, exactly. So. When you think about that, you're like, but what? That's gross. <laughs> it's gross. But, and, and a lot of those bacteria help keep us alive. Right. If we didn't have them, we couldn't exist. And so even little facts like that, and it doesn't have to be about sexual, anything sexual, but just our bodies are incredible. Our, our ability to live on this planet. When we talk about our taste buds and the fact that we can, like, food is delicious. Like, what is that about that we evolved this sense of, you know, taste that it's just like, not only is, does it taste good, but it's satisfying and it's relaxing and it, you know, so, so just to talk about all the amazing things that our bodies can do, even our eyeballs, even seeing, right? So if I give you an image and I cut out, you know, every third inch of the image, your brain can still yep. put together what that thing is. Yep even though parts of it are missing. So there's so many facts about what our bodies can do. And it's not so much that I expect a kid is going to leave my office and think, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a scientist. 
but they're going to be thinking about that fact later on, right? <laughs> that's going to stick in their mind yeah. like, wow. And that's what I want them to get, that wow. And maybe in that wow about what your body can do, they'll start thinking, let me take care of this body is incredible. Yeah. Let me take care of it. Here are yeah. the things I need to do to keep it healthy because it's amazing. It can do amazing things. Yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, no, I think that's a great approach to having that conversation because they're going to remember that conversation because mm-hmm. you sound like the like a doctor that wants to know their patients have a conversation. Mm-hmm. You're not a doctor that's microwaying them through. Like, I don't know much about yeah. you. I mean, just by what you're saying, because yeah. I have that relationship with my doctor, like, the appointment is probably five minutes of medical and 30 minutes of what have you been doing the last whatever? Cause I just exactly. got my physical and he, you know, and that's the thing. And so like for him in my conversation with him, he was like, so have you been playing basketball? And I was like, no, he's like, well, a lot of this is what you're saying that's happening is I'm going to need you to go play basketball so you can get outside. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not what I'm here for. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Right, he gives you what you need, not necessarily what you ask for. And I think I I would love my dream for American healthcare is that everybody would have that kind of relationship with their care provider. When I was in medical school, my teachers talked to me a lot about the therapeutic relationship. That was a big thread throughout all of my medical school. And that's something I strive to do with my patients now is develop a relationship where to be where they can be honest with you because we know that patients aren't always honest either because they feel judged or they feel right. shame or they, for whatever reason, and if someone's not honest with you, you can't help them. So I try to develop a relationship where it's like, there's no judgment. Girl, life is real. You got to do what you got to do to survive the next day. Yeah. I was saying to someone the other day, as, as your doctor does, I was asking her, you know, how are you doing? What's going on? We were done with all the, the medical stuff. And, and then she started to break down and say, you know, it's really hard for me. I'm struggling right now. And I was like, listen, let's keep it basic. Breathe. That's it. Yeah. That is your, when, when things get hard, all you need to do is keep breathing. Yeah. And then when, when you get a little bit better, when you're feeling better, when you're feeling more capable, then you think about rent. Yeah. <laughs> but, but until you can feel like you can get out of bed in the morning and you can get your you know, get a cup of coffee, forget it. If those people need your rent so bad that they're going to go out of business, they have bigger problems than your rent, right? (laughs) So like, I keep it very simple. And I try to develop that relationship where there's no judgment. This is all about everybody trying to have the happiest, healthiest life they can have. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think our our mental Mm -hmm. determines how our physical. And I don't think that kind of, it's starting to get talked about now because of COVID and because of everything Mm -hmm. else. But it's like when your mental breaks down, then your physical starts to feel the effect sure. of it. And so sure. that is definitely one of the um, one of the things that I think we're all adjusting to. So mm-hmm. I want to shift this back a little bit. So let's tell the people about your college experience and what that was like in your undergrad to medical school <laughs> to residency. <laughs> Actually, that is, you don't know, but that's a perfect segue because, so in order to tell you about college, I got to tell you something about my family. I'm from a West Indian immigrant family. I was born in Barbados. My mom came to the United States when I was five and worked to bring me and my three siblings here, right? So hardworking, surviving, right? Immigrants are survivors, right? Right. 
And one thing about West Indians is we're very, um, like, get it done. Very pragmatic people. So I say, and, and I grew up in Brooklyn with nothing but West Indians. So it was my family and the rest of the West Indies in Brooklyn. So I go to college and college is challenging. Not, I mean, it turned out to be challenging academically, but that was because of the mental stuff going on. So what I did not realize until I finished college was that I was depressed for four years in college. Oh, wow. And I will tell you and your listeners, don't let this happen to you. So I'm out of college. I graduated. I have a job. I've moved to LA. I'm a high school teacher. And one day I'm sitting in my apartment. I'm watching a commercial and it has the 10 signs of depression. And I was like, what if you have all 10? Wow. (laughs) And that was how I realized that I was depressed for four years. Don't let this happen to you people. So I went through college and, and now looking back on it, I remember one day I was talking to a friend and she said, and, and we were having this conversation about how down we felt, both of us, the blind leading the blind. And I said to her, I feel like there's a dark cloud following me wherever I go. Now, if that isn't your classic definition, of the, but she is neither she nor I. Right. right. <laughs> like now I look back on that and I'm like, we were so not just dumb about depression and mental health, but that we were both from families that didn't even acknowledge right. that there was mental health. Like yep. neither one of us could say, oh, that's not normal, right? Yeah. So anyway, so college was tough because of that. But like I said, I was a bio major. And it, even with all of that, it did not dim one iota. My interest in biology, in um, medicine, or my determination to be a doctor. Not even a little bit. So no matter what the ups and downs were through college, academically, it was like, well, I'm going to be a doctor one day. This is tough right now, but I'll be a doctor. (laughs) Never changed that at all. And so um, after college, like I said, I was a a high school teacher for two years. And we have time. We can talk about that because teachers, kudos to y'all. You were doing God's work. You were angels on earth. That was not for me. (laughs) I was like, this is too hard. And then I went to graduate school and did my degree in public health. And I I majored in maternal and child health. And that was, I learned so much there. And I'm so grateful for that. I feel like uh, public health was the context for medicine for me. Yeah, It it gave my my medical uh, uh, education a context. And then I, I actually worked for a few years after public health school, before I went to med school. I was 28 when I went back to med school. And med school was great. I really, really enjoyed my medical school experience. And I think that was partly because I was 28. Right. So I was old enough. I had a life. I've gotten to travel a little bit, meet some great people. Um, And I didn't feel like, I felt like I'd had a life and I was ready. I was ready for it. And just so medical school then was more of that stuff I was talking about when I was a child, right? Yeah. All those things about how the body works and you learn the minute details of, you know, how do your cells work and how do your organs come together and, you know, what, what's a heart attack? And I mean, it was just awesome to be getting all that. And then in the third and fourth years, when you start seeing patients, then you start putting the the overlay of psychology of how people's brains work and also the context of people's lives. And you start getting the bigger picture of how your housing influences your ability to get healthcare and your health insurance influences. Right. And, and 
it was just awesome. I enjoyed every minute of it. And the residency was just more of that. Residency is where you specifically train in your field. So that's where I was training in obstetrics and gynecology. And again, that was its whole uh, joy on its own because now at 11, 12, I decided to be an OBGYN and now I'm doing it. And it is as amazing as I thought it was. <laughs> it was amazing. And um, so that was, that was awesome. And just, I, I glossed over something in college that's super important and, and pertinent to your podcast. In college, I was a biology major and that training as a scientist, uh-huh. that, that learning the scientific method and how to ask questions and how to evaluate data. And that has stood me in such good stead, especially now. Right. So I went to college in what, 1986, right? There was barely email, right? There were those <laughs> right. old email systems where the pl- person you were talking to had to have the same machine as you, right? Yeah. And and the internet wasn't a thing then. Right. But I will tell you that that training has really helped me now that there is an internet. Yeah. And why do I say that? Because on the internet now, there's so much information and it is so hard to tell what's good information and right. bad information. Right. And so I called back on that training I had as a scientist, as a biology major undergrad, to help me figure out what is good information and what is not good information every day. And I really don't know how people who don't have that training manage the internet. Yeah. I see why people wind up with so many mistaken beliefs or being misguided by information on the internet, because how do you, if you don't have that background, know how to evaluate all the information coming at you? Because it looks good. Yeah. I've seen articles that look like they're journal articles and they are, they have so many mistakes and so many lies and so much mistaken information that I'm so grateful for that training. So now I say to all my students, you can major in poetry and chemistry. You can major in music and computer science yeah. because that training as a scientist will stand you in good stead no matter what you do in the future. Yeah, critical thinking and mm-hmm. figuring that stuff out. And that's what I think for me. And logic. Reason. Yeah, and that's mm-hmm. like, I was like, you can read through an article and you'd be like, mm, that, that's not two plus two. That just don't, that, that just don't go right. And not everybody mm-hmm. has that. And I'm learning that yeah. too. In a sense, mm-hmm. though, I'm like, how did you get that out of that article? Like when you're in a conference, I'm like, I didn't catch that. So yeah, so that's that's interesting. So where did you do your residency at? I so I did undergrad at Vassar, um, public health Vassar, at UC Berkeley. Like, oh, just pass over Vassar, like that's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and and you know my relationship with Vassar has gotten better over the years. Um, and then med school at Mount Sinai in New York City, and then I moved to Boston to um, I did my residency. It's a joint program between Massachusetts General Hospital and Brigham and Women's Hospital, affiliated with Harvard. Okay, so mm-hmm. then how did you get to Arizona, my dear? Because it sounds well, like well, in part because oh. I went to Boston. Where if you've been to Boston in the winter, you know something's falling out of the sky every single day—rain, sleet, freezing water, whatever. And so I was determined not to have to shovel my car out ever again. Not to have. <laughs> I remember one blizzard in Boston, 
um, my niece was visiting me and we were having a spat and she was like, I'm going home. And she went out the door and there was snow to like her waist and she stomped back in the house and slammed the door like, Guess I I'm can't leave. Home. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Boston. So I was determined not to live like that anymore. I love it. Sunshine and blue skies almost every day. Fantastic. So when you came here, you started your practice right away or did you? I joined someone else. So when I came here, I joined a doctor who had started this this practice back in 1984, actually. This practice has been around a long time. And um, it was three of us for a while. And then it was just me and her for a little bit. And I became part owner of the practice. And she's retired. She retired in 2014. She actually is living the dream. She is... um, she and her husband had a boat for many years, and now they sail on their boat. Wow. Mm-hmm. Pretty incredible. She had the boat in San Francisco, and they sailed around down through the Panama Canal, and up, um, now they do mostly East Coast yeah. stuff, stuff on That's that side cool. of the world. Mm-hmm. So uh, what's on your retirement plan for, I know you're a traveler. Pre-COVID, you were a traveler. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? I don't know. There's so many things to do. You know, one of the things that um, that hampers life is having to work for money. (laughs) So when you have the luxury of not working for money, there's so many worthy things you can do with your time. Like, I don't see myself ever just sitting around or just traveling, although travel is, is amazing. It's wonderful to be able to go and meet people with different contexts and different perspectives and different life stories. But there's so many things to do. Like literacy is a big thing that I care a lot about. So I'm like, oh, what I spend time helping people learn to read? Because wow, what a gift to give someone, right? Um, Or like, I'm very, I don't know, interested in isn't quite the right word because it's such a tragedy. But, you know, the stories of people who are wrongfully incarcerated yeah, and helping them, one, get free and two, for anybody who's incarcerated, have a life when they get out. Yeah. So like, maybe I'd spend time doing that because for those cases, they often need people who can read science and know science. I was yeah. like, what if, that would be such a great use of my time. So there's so many worthy things that like you're doing to help kids become fascinated with science yeah like that's amazing that's yeah. just what a gift you know to the world yeah because if we america we're making mistakes by not teaching science by not getting all our students energized about science because the world is just becoming more and more and more about science and technology yeah definitely that definitely it's unfortunately you are not going to have entry-level positions your grocery stores will be automated, your gas state, everything will be automated. And so it's like, how do we get our, our kids? Other countries are getting their kids there, but Mm -hmm. how do we get our kids there? And how do we get them ready to think? Because thinking, filling out a bubble on a test is not thinking. Right. You know, and not every kid is going to be good in everything, but let's let's change our education. Cuz I think the monastery schools do that where they find mm-hmm. the kids and that's that's the direction they drive mm-hmm. them in where their interests are and not yeah. necessarily you get everything. You know, you get a little right. bit of it, but if you have a high right. aptitude in this, I'm mm-hmm. in that. And you get so, more of that. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think our education system in the U.S. is still 1930s and we're For sure. <laughs> For sure. I, I tell, I, sometimes I go speak, uh, I have one of my friends from teaching, I go speak to her classroom. And I was telling them one of the times when I went to LA to go see her, I ha- have had a Prius at the time and I lost my car key. <laughs> I'm like, oh Lord, how am I going to get home? And it's a Sunday. The dealerships right. are closed, right? And finally, a friend of mine said, why don't you call a locksmith? Maybe they can help you. Well, Mr. Lee and his son drove up with their computer Oh, and hacked it, huh? They, yes. And they programmed me a key and boom, boom, 30 minutes later, I was on my way. That's, that's the nature. Locksmith. Wow. That, that is the nature of cars today. They're computers. Yeah. yeah. They came out with their laptop. I was like, look at this release. 30 minutes later, I had a key and I was on my way. Yeah. So, so like kids, yeah, kids today, I want them to understand like everything is about science. Back in the day, you thought I could be a mechanic or I could be a plumber. And houses are smart now. Yeah. So you even need to know computers to fix something on a house, you know? Yeah. Electrician. Oh, you know, people have solar panels. I had solar panels on my old house. And I had an app and a little box that I plugged in and I could monitor my solar panels. Yeah. Like everything is a sensor or an interface or... Yeah, so you got enough science to know everything. Like you said, your grocery store checkout is now computers, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It is definitely. Um, it's interesting, though, in a sense of. I think COVID has definitely set us back to see how big the divide really is. Is because mm-hmm. for me, I've been screaming digital divide, digital divide, and people were like, "Yeah, there's no such thing. Everyone has a phone." I was like, "I can't do homework on a phone." Like. Everybody has a phone. Right. And, you know, and one of the other things, especially for Arizona, is Phoenix Metropolitan has pockets. So we are Mm -hmm. an inner city, but there are pockets here Mm -hmm. that their community do not have Internet access because the companies say their ROI is not good enough because Mm -hmm. and they're not going to put it in there. And my question is to the state is, why is that okay? Why do why is that okay? Why is that okay? Yeah, you know, America has this attitude in all things of haves and have nots. And we are okay with have nots in our nation. And we do that in healthcare too, of course yeah. we do. Yeah. And it's like, why is that okay? We, are, we go around the world saying we are the richest, we're the best, we're the smartest. Why is it okay to have have nots in our country? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's very frustrating. And it does not cost the arm and a leg. People always think, well, if they get, then I won't have. No, no. we pay for them anyway. Yes. We pay. When we have students who can't access the internet and can't do their homework, what do you think? They dissolve into thin air? They're still going <laughs> to need to live somewhere and we are going to pay for it. Yeah. You know, I, I, the, the analogy with, with healthcare is, you know, we have universal healthcare in this country for emergency services. Yeah. Right. So that kid that you didn't invest in as a child, you didn't give them nutritious food. You didn't give them internet. They couldn't do their homework. So now they're living on the street or they can barely eat. And let's say they have a heart attack in the middle of the street. Yep. We're not going to leave them lying there. No. Nope. We're going to send an ambulance. They're going to go to the hospital. They're going to get the cast. They're going to get the surgery. They're going to get a stent. They're going to go to ICU. And who's going to pay for it? Me and you. Everybody, so yep. why don't we pay for them so they can be contributing members of society and have a happy life? Yeah. Why can't we add a little happiness on top of the emergency care? Yeah. And until we get that as a nation, 
we're going to keep doing what we're doing, which is not advancing as fast as we could. Yeah, I was in a conversation um, on one of my many meetings and we were talking about that the healthcare, as far as, you know, in the school systems, I was like, I remember when I was a kid, your hearing test was at school, your scoliosis test was at school. Your like, yeah, mm-hmm. you're like, you had all these things that happened in mm-hmm. the school. So how do you get that back in the school system mm-hmm. or back where it's a facility or something? It right. may not be the school's responsibility, but how do you bring that holistic well, approach? Right. To so that everybody gets the service. That's yep. the point. Everybody gets the service. Right. I got my vision test that told my mom I needed glasses at school. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I remember bend over so we can check your back. And your scoliosis test. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, kids are probably like, what are you talking about? What's a scoliosis right. test? Because They barely know. get PE. Where we were tortured with PE every day. You oh. can't complain about PE if you didn't live in Arizona in the summertime. <laughs> oh, no, you're right. I can't. Because we didn't even go outside. My, I was in a school that was like a five-story building. We didn't have outside. So everything was inside. <laughs> yeah. Well, everything in Arizona has always been outside. You leave and oh change classrooms outside. There was no yeah. inside schools back when I was a, t- when I was a kid. Um, oh, growing up. Part of that, I think, is cool, too. Don't <laughs> get me started on that. When I moved here, one of my nephews lived with me. He was in sixth grade. And I was like, what do you mean you don't have a cafeteria to eat your luncheon? What? What do you mean y'all sit outside to eat lunch? It's hot. And he's like, that. we sit on the bench. What? <laughs> I was appalled. <laughs> like, that's cool. Poor kid. Bill's character, though. Yeah, I mean, it's, but I think it's one of those things for me. I didn't know that it was any different until you go to another mm-hmm. state or you have a conversation because it was just like, this is yeah. normal, you know? And so... Yeah. That's the thing I think is um, interesting that I can say for technology has done for me is allowed me the finances to travel and experience and do all the things mm-hmm. because as African-Americans, sometimes we get landlocked and we don't go anywhere because we don't have mm-hmm. those opportunities. So mm-hmm. what, so what opportunities outside of your career, like entertainment or what that being a doctor has allowed you to experience? Oh, wow. I would say the biggest one actually is freedom. And freedom to do whatever I want. So uh, one of the things I always say to students is, if you drop out of school, if you stay in school, you're probably going to work 40, 50 hours a week, no matter what. But the person who stayed in school is going to get so much more for that for those hours, right. then they're going to have freedom that you don't have, uh-huh. right? Because you're going to slave away those 50 hours, and then you're going to go home tired. You're not going to get enough money that you have extra So your life is going to be, like you said, you're going to be limited. You're not going to have opportunities. So having gone to medical school and now being able to own my practice, I can set my schedule myself. So I set my schedule and I work as, don't let my staff hear me saying this, but edit this part out. (laughs) But I set my schedule to work the amount that I want to work or in the ways that I want to work, which allows me freedom to, I was talking about going to visit my friend who's a teacher in LA. So she says, Hey, can you come talk to my students? I say, sure. When do you want me to come? And then I create the space in my schedule so I can go do it. Right. right? Or if I want to do a book fair for kids at the elementary school, I change my schedule so I can go do that. So I, I have the freedom to do a lot of things that I find fulfilling. Yeah. You know, because I don't have to 
you know, work, work, work to be able to afford my life. And that freedom is priceless. I'm telling you, if you're listening to this and you don't want to do your homework, go do your homework. (laughs) Because one day you will be able to do the things that you want to do. um, And you will have the freedom to, to modify your life in the way that you want to and not be so constrained by the things you have to do. Right. Because there's certain things we all have to do. But do you have any wiggle room? Do you have any play, any leverage to to modify things? And I would say that's the biggest thing. And so with that freedom, I can travel. I can volunteer. I can help other people. I can, you know, there's so many things that I can do because I'm not so constrained by what I have to do. Yeah, no, that's a very good mm-hmm. point, a good perspective on how the freedom that it, it brings you to allow mm-hmm. you to, to do you, to impact, mm-hmm. impact the community, impact your um, impact your patients. Because I think some of the things mm-hmm. doctors do get burned out, but you have that luxury of not getting burned out because you can set your schedule mm-hmm. at work. And then I think a burned out doctor re- produces not happy clients. <laughs> for sure, for sure. That might be part of the problem in healthcare is that many, many people are burnt out, but they're doing what they have to do because maybe they, you know, wanted the Lamborghini or they wanted a big fancy house and now right. they have to do. Yeah. And that's not helpful to anybody to be burnt out and still have to get up every day and do it every day. And also the other thing it allows me, I have to say, is that then I can help other people too. Yeah. So my employees, there are choices I can make with them. There's, uh, I can be a mentor. I can be an educator, you know, and just pay it forward. Yeah. No, that's great. Uh, uh, we will all hope to be on that path one day. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> of, and I mean, definitely, I think uh, working towards that um, is the goal of everybody. And I think, unfortunately, that's why you see people creating businesses really fast because they're trying to get it without mm-hmm. doing some of the work. So I think people, because of Instagram, it makes it look like you can have this life really fast, not knowing that it took work for people to get there. And that's the thing that's like, yeah, no, you know, it's funny. Kevin Hart, I, I saw an interview with him and he was saying, you know, someone was asking about his success, yada, yada. And he said, you know, people look at me and they think I'm an overnight success. I've been in this business 20 years. So I'm a 20 year overnight success. You know, and that's what people are missing. It takes 20 years to be an overnight success. Yes. Right. So yeah. you got it. And, and also, I would say, you know, to, to people who are falling for that Instagram thing, one, get off Instagram a little bit because <laughs> it does nothing good for your mental health. But the second piece is chase what you love. Yes. And then the world will come to you. And the yes. biggest example of that is the platform we are talking on right now, Zoom. So the people who created Zoom created their platform and they were out there doing their thing. And I bet you before the pandemic, 80% of their business was the free Zoom. I promise you, right? Oh, yeah. And they were probably, but they kept putting out a good product and they made sure it was helpful to all those people who were doing the free version. And that they had a, a product that they could use and do what they needed to do. And then the world came to their door. Yeah. Right. Yes, because they created a product that was robust and useful and they respected their customers. And so if you do that, if you chase what you love and you do it with integrity 
and you do it with excellence and you strive to be outstanding, you may slog away like the folks in Zoom. I would love, I would love to hear them on a podcast yeah. talking about what life was like before. Yeah. And how they were struggling. Just like, can we ever make money from this? You know? Yeah. And then, but they, they kept putting out a good product. They didn't skimp. They didn't um, disrespect their customers, right? So I want people to get that idea. Do your thing. Like, frankly, you're doing. You do that with your students. You're yeah. doing it because you love it. And these students are having um, their lives impacted and they're learning and you're doing it for the joy of it. And I promise you, you keep doing it. The world will come. Yeah, no, right? I, I totally, yeah, I agree with you. But the one yeah. that is, um, that just popped in my head when you were talking about zoom that is a 20 year success is Sarah Blakely in Spain. Right. Right. You know, she was door to door selling typewriters. Mm-hmm. Was it typewriters? I don't remember, but yeah, yeah. But she built something because she was like, I need this for me. Like I, mm-hmm. and you know, like I've listened to her story, but yeah, 20 years right. later, she's going to make it to, as best as I can. And yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. So now mm-hmm. her, yeah. And so that's the thing is like, put in the work, you know, cause you know, you're talking put in about the work. Yeah. My STEM program. I was like, Oh my God, I started year seven. I can't mm-hmm. believe it's been seven years. Cause it's been fun. Despite the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, we adjusted last year, but I'm like, right. Okay. So yeah, it is definitely, you got to do the work. And I think that's the thing that is missed in this next generation because technology is so readily available to them right. and has been in front of them for 90% of their life, if mm-hmm. not their whole lives. Mm-hmm. And so that is the biggest, that, that's yeah. the hurdles they're going to have to learn the hard way. <laughs> yeah. And also like one of the things you said though was you can't believe it's seven years because it's been fun. Yeah. So do the work, but don't try to slog away at something you hate. Right. Do the thing you love to do. And that's that's the part that's so hard. And people try to jump over that too. Yeah. Pay attention to what you love. I always say pay attention to what makes you smile in your chest, right? Yeah. That gives you that feeling that's like, oh my goodness, right? What gives you that feeling? That's the thing. One of my high school teachers, over my life, I've had amazing teachers. Shout out to all of them. They've been amazing. One in particular, though, was my calculus teacher in high school. And we had Miss Mora for two periods back to back. There was a lot of time, right? right. And someday she would read the room and be like, y'all ain't learning no math today. Let's talk. And we would just talk about life. Oh, that's And one of the things Miss Mora said to us one day was the key to success is to figure out what you love to do and get someone to pay you to do that. Right. That was my guiding light through my whole life. Yeah. And true words. When I tell you, if you can integrate the truth of that, whoever you are, wherever you are, it doesn't matter how old you are even. Yeah. You will meet with success. Figure out what you love and, and then find a way for someone to pay you to do that. Yeah. And success will come. It will come. Because when you do that, you are doing something, one, that makes somebody happy. You. Right. <laughs> and if it makes you happy, it's going to make somebody else happy. Right. Right. And if it makes you happy, you're going to be outstanding at it. Right. And then it can't help but be good. And it might not be, people might not see how good it is today, but like Sarah Blakely, like Zoom, like Tyler Perry, like right. so many people, eventually they see it. Eventually the world will come to you. Yep. Nope. And you might have to marry for money. 
<laughs> while you're working on your love, right? But do that and the world will come. Yeah, no, definitely. Very valid point. So to close out on the last question or comment, is there any additional advice? Because what you said has been amazing and great that you would like to give our listeners about if they're going into STEM or if they're just, you know, if they want to become a doctor or just that whole path of your last parting words to our listeners. Nothing is too hard. I hear kids say all the time, I can't do that. It's too hard. Nothing is too hard. We all human beings come with a brain and our brains work exactly the same way. Some people have an aptitude to certain things. So that comes very fluid to them. Other people have to work harder to get to the same place. But if you have to work a little bit harder to get there, you can get there. Right. You might need different resources. You might need a different amount of time. But if you have a passion for mechanical engineering, yes, mechanical engineering is not a cake. It's not baking a cake. But you know what? To some people, baking a cake is incredibly difficult. <laughs> yeah. Right. So whatever it is that you want to do, if that's what you love, if that's what you have a passion for, you can get the resources, you can get the time, you can get the mentoring, you can get, you know, the help that you need to do that thing. So never blow off something that you love because you think it's too hard. We are all capable of doing hard things. Yeah. And you know what? Being hungry is hard. <laughs> you know, having to work three jobs is hard. Not having the money to do what you want to do in your life is hard. So there are a lot of hard things. If there's something you love, you can do it even if people say it's hard. So don't turn your back on anything because someone says it's hard. Right. It's all about perspective. The hard is relative was to that person. Incredibly hard. <laughs> Boy, you, oh, you said teaching? Teaching. Woo. That was too hard for me. Like, I could not be a classroom teacher. Oh, me neither. I found classroom teaching harder than medical school. It's relative. Yeah. And there's some teachers who are amazing. Yep. In fact, the same counselor's teacher said to me, she loved teaching so much. She often didn't even open her paycheck. What? Yeah. So hard is relative. Don't let anybody turn you away from anything because they say or you think it's too hard. Well, with that, I would like to thank Dr. Sharon Thompson for spending some time with us this afternoon on How Technology Changed My Life podcast. I hope you all enjoy and uh, we will be back with you again soon. <laughs>